The big idea of today's home worship guide is as we continue our series on the practice of prayer, which we started before the coronavirus and continue to think about different aspects of prayer, we're adding in a secondary discipline in the last two Sundays and throughout the podcast messages on fasting. And the big idea is fasting, in part, can be a way for us to stand in solidarity with the poor. And now solidarity might be one of those words, especially if any of you kids are listening. We were talking about this last night at our dinner table, and we were trying to like help understand what this was like. And I think the simplest way right from the outset to just explain what we mean by this is if you've ever seen somebody that's had to go through chemotherapy and they've lost their hair, and we sometimes see people that, you know, have to endure the the pains and the agonies and the struggles of a really tough battle with cancer, you'll see friends and family members and people shave their heads. And it's not because that's going to somehow help them uh, feel the pains of cancer. It's not like that lessens the pain of the person that's going through the cancer or helps them get cured. It's to say that you're going to stand with them that you're going to somehow go through a ritual, uh, an action, some sort of thing that actually does have consequences. I mean, when you shave your head off, I mean, I don't have a whole lot of hair, so it wouldn't be a big deal for me maybe. But, uh, you know, for many of you, especially men or women that's got a nice full head of hair, you shave your hair off like the next day. You're like, oh, wow, I did that. And uh, it it has like an ongoing sense of of consequence. And, And there's this ability then to stand with someone while they're going through a hard time. Fasting is a way for us to do that. So this week's worship guide is going to take us, as I said, through Isaiah 58. And as we continue to focus on the practice of prayer and fasting, we want by the end of this time together that you'll take away two things, at least two things. First and more broadly, We want to examine the relationship between our religious activities with our hands and then the love of our heart. And I want you to be thinking about those two things, your hands and your heart. And what's the relationship between the things that we do and the actual love we have for hurting people in our world? The second takeaway from this passage of scripture and this teaching on fasting as a standing in solidarity with the poor is that we would actually deny ourselves food so that we can share the food we have eaten with the hungry. And so that's a more specific application and one that I'm sure some of us, as we've talked about in the past, are unable to do in this season of our life with the specifics of maybe foregoing a meal or not eating. We all have different health conditions or stages of life or things that will prevent us from maybe doing that specific uh, activity. But I do think all of us should be considering what are we doing with our lives that will help communicate love, the love of Christ, as we just sang, shining our light so the whole world will see the glory of the risen King. And we want to be thinking about the combination between our heart and our hands in Isaiah 58. There is a crying out, a trumpet blast about the sin of Israel. Do you see that in verse 1? God is speaking to the prophet, cry aloud, do not hold back. Uh, 
Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. And then the very next verse seems quite surprising. Yet, so we know that they're sinning and that God wants them to be exposed of their sin. That's the way the chapter opens, right? Verse 2, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God and their fasting, verse 3 says. What's the, the basic condition of these people in Chapter 58, we see that there are people who are clearly in sin, but are also very clearly active in worship. And this is what I want to make sure is really clear to all of us, especially because we're taking time out of our morning and we're most of us on this call or listening to this are going to be Christians. We're going to be people who are committed to acts of worship. Seeking God daily in prayer or in the Bible or in doing good deeds for the glory of God. Acts of righteousness and drawing near. Some of us may even take up the practice of fasting and hear Isaiah speaking on behalf of God is telling us there are times when we can completely miss it. And have our hearts, our motivations of our hearts or the desires of our hearts completely disengaged and unaffected by our habits with our hands. It's obvious that the sort of fasting that they're doing isn't, the problem is not the actual external act of the fasting. So you can see actually in uh, verse five, is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself is it to bow down his head like a reed and spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Essentially, in verse 5, he's describing with poetic metaphor the actual acts of fasting that were common. So fasting is a humbling of ourselves before the Lord. It is a bowing our heads down. It is for oftentimes in these cultures, spreading sackcloth and ashes to show somebody's humility and pain and grief. And obviously, there's this rhetorical satire-like question, almost a bit of sarcasm. Do you call this a fast? I want you to be thinking about your own life. This is not just for us to have our time of reading the Bible. This is where we want the Bible to read us. And we need to be thinking about whether or not there are times where you might say, go through the motions of religious activities and have your heart unaffected. Verse four makes it quite plain. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. He wants to make it clear to them, do you, you know why I'm not listening to your prayers? It's because you are not really praying for me and for the goodness of my kingdom and my purposes. This is all about you. You are treating me like a genie in the bottle. 
You're acting like you can fast. And this is probably at the heart of what's going on here in Isaiah 58. Fasting becomes like one of these mechanical levers. If I could just pull this lever down, okay, fast a little bit on Tuesday, put a little sackcloth in ashes, humble myself. All right, then I'm going to get something, right, God? Because that's how this thing works. And God's like, no, that is not how this works. It's very similar to the words of Isaiah chapter 1. As the whole book starts out, Isaiah is saying the same things. And he says, bring me no more offerings or incense because it's an abomination to me. Your new moon and your Sabbath and the calling of your convocations, I cannot endure all of this iniquity in my solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. This is intense language. This is like the first chapter of Isaiah. And you might be wondering, like, what is up with God, you know? But really, it's what's up with these sinful religious people. It's, it's basically like he's listing out all of the worship activities. It's like your Sunday morning Zoom gathering, it stinks. Your Sunday morning worship and song, like I'm not receiving praise from this. When you pray in the morning, I'm shutting my ears. I don't want to listen to it. And, and when you uh, have your Easter festivities and you, you have your Good Friday and Easter Sunday and Christmas and all these special holidays, guess what? They're disgusting to me. I hate them. Like, that's essentially the translation of what God would be saying for us today. And then you need to make sure you understand why. The answer in chapter one is your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, and bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. It's almost identical, again, to what Zechariah says. And I think it's helpful to read Zechariah's language because it helps us get more specific as to why God is upset with their fasting. And so here's in Zechariah chapter 7, verse 4. The word of the Lord came to me. Tell all of the people of the land and the priests that when you fasted and when you mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? I think that's the heart of this. Was it for me when you fasted and when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? See, I think at the heart of what's happening in Isaiah 58 is that these people are fasting and praying and doing their religious activities for themselves. This is not for God. It is not for other people. It is so self-centered that it's sickening to God. And that's why there's such strong language. It's not God worship. It's idolatry of self-worship. And anytime we treat God as if like, our ultimate aim is whatever he's going to give us, then we don't praise him and worship him as the giver, as the giver of all the good gifts. We just worship the gifts that he gives based on whatever sort of spiritual activities we do. And then these spiritual activities, they don't actually transform the heart to create us people of love. They just become duties, duties to get 
the means to the end goal of whatever it is we really want. And so you fill in the blank with what that is. What's the thing that you really, really want? And you think, well, I'm going to fast so that way I get it. That is the wrong way to think about fasting and why we've been talking about it for the last two weeks to say fasting in the Bible is first a response to something that God is doing that causes you to fast. It could be the response of the ugliness of your sin as it's being exposed. It could be the grief or the loss of a loved one. It could be the horrible feeling you have right now as you're thinking through the coronavirus and you're thinking about all of the awful things that are going on in the world. And just to think about that for a minute and you're like, I'm sitting here in my house and I don't have the coronavirus and I have food to eat and I still have a job. And it's like, surely there's something more I can be doing to respond in a way that would be appropriate. That's not just like, well, Sucks to be you guys that are suffering. I'm doing good in my house quarantined. Like, that's a horrible attitude, isn't it? It's a such self-centered focus. Fasting is a way for us to have solidarity with those who are suffering. And that's exactly what Isaiah points to in Isaiah 58. Look at verses 6 and following. God, through Isaiah, says, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? And when you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. I like that last line because that's the one that maybe we might be like, what's he saying there? Not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Every human being made in the image of God is one of us. So treat them as such. Think about the equality of God's justice in the world. The justice of God means that all of us are made with equal dignity and worth. And so he says, do not deny your own flesh or hide yourself or turn yourself away from somebody that's just like you. Instead, go without so you can give share i don't know if you knew this but early on in the very beginning stages of christianity christians would fast for the specific purpose of feeding the hungry and the poor there's this early christian document that has survived it's called the shepherd of hermas it's a real page turner friends not really but It gives us extremely important information about what the early church did. And here's one of the comments said about fasting. After refraining from bread and water, a Christian is to estimate the cost of the food that you would have eaten on that day. Then give the amount to a widow or an orphan or someone in need. Be humble in this way that the one who receives something because of your humility may fill his own soul and pray to the Lord for you. Wow. That's early Christian practices of fasting two times every week. The early Christian Didache, it's another one of these early documents, said that we do not want to be like the Pharisees who fast on Monday and Wednesday. Do you guys remember that story Jesus tells of there's that Pharisee and he's in the temple and he says, Oh, Father, I fast two times a day or two times a week and uh, I do all these things. And he's like, you know, humbling himself. And then there's the poor man that... uh, is, is pouring out his heart before God. And then Jesus says, yeah, that Pharisee, 
he, he's not the one who walked away justified. It's that poor uh, man that, that you would have thought is worth nothing, right? Like, so there, think of that, that practice of fasting two times a week was a common Jewish pharisaical practice to take, you know, God real seriously. Well, Christians said, well, we can't be like the Pharisees. So instead of fasting on Monday and Wednesday, uh, or sorry, Monday and Thursday, we're going to fast on Wednesday and Friday. How about that? That's, that's pretty hardcore, isn't it? Like, we're, we're going to switch up the days. <laughs> so anyway, you've got this practice of Christians from the earliest days fasting two times a week. And then you've got further records saying that what they would do is not just not eat and then pray. And then not eat because, oh, that's going to manipulate God's hand. So I'm going to get something that I really wanted. And that's a way to boost up my, my spiritual prayer life. Instead, it was a way for them to help care for the poor and the needy. Think of a few hundred years later, St. Augustine said this, Fasting will chasten ourself, and it should also refresh others. Your distress will profit you if you can afford to comfort others. He asks the question, how many poor could be filled by the breakfast that we have given up on this day? Or take John Wesley several hundred years later. In February 17, 1774, John Wesley and his friends had a fast. And he said, in the afternoon, I want many to come together. And I exhort you to deal with the bread to the hungry, clothe the naked, and not to hide yourselves from your own flesh. God will open our hearts so that we can contribute And he said that they had 50 pounds given that very day, which he started laying out the next hour into linen and woolen and shoes so he could clothe the poor and the naked. What I'm trying to get at is that this is not some new novel idea. It's rooted in Isaiah 58 and Christians for the last 2000 years, you can find record, have practiced fasting in order to stand in solidarity with the poor, to realize that We have plenty, and when you have plenty and you see those who have very little, there's that helpless feeling of like, oh, I wish I could do something. I wish I could like help and fix it. And then there's that feeling of like, there's no way that my fasting and giving up a meal and then giving $5 or $10 to someone is going to like fix the whole world hunger problem. So that's one option. Just don't do anything. Or... Do something fast. Don't eat a meal and give what you would have spent the time, the money, and the energy to give that food to someone else. Now, some of you might be thinking, sounds good, but like, how's that actually going to happen? Do we have anything set up right now as a church where we deliver food to people? Oh, wait, actually we do. And so this is a perfect time for us to think about our Rand Grove ministry. And I just would like to provide a brief update and application for all of us to have as a, like right off the bat, there's something you could do this week. You could pick a day where you decide I'm not going to eat lunch and I'm not going to eat lunch. And instead I'm going to pack food. And what I would have spent on that lunch, I'm going to help contribute to the needs of the people at Rand Grove. 
And right now we're working with the Thrive Vineyard Church in Palatine, who we've been partnered with for the last two years at Rand Grove. And they too are going to be doing this as well. I don't know if they're doing the whole fasting thing. We've not talked about that. But they are packing food and praying and delivering. And we're going to create and send out some sign-up sheets so that two churches are going to come together. And we want to bless the socks off of the Rand Grove community. How does that sound? There's something that we can do instead of just sit in quarantine and be self-absorbed and think about ourselves. There's a way for us to actually feel the hunger and the pain and the suffering, and this is one application of that. Now, again, some of you may not be able to go without eating and whatever you know reasons understood. This should not be a guilt trip on that. But all of us hopefully might be able to say, I could spend a little less and have a little bit less to eat today or, or maybe a little uh, tighter on my budget and then help contribute. Also think about you guys that are in community groups or in friend circles within the church. You don't have to do this alone. This is a community project that we want to do together. So if you're like, well, what is my $5 that I would have spent on my peanut butter and jelly going to help contribute? Like it will all add up. And when we do this as a collective family of God, I, I, I know I can just feel it in my bones. God's going to work greatly through us and through Thrive, and I'm excited about the next month ahead and all that we might be able to do as a church family together. So be on the lookout for a specific application for us as a church to put God's word into practice. James chapter 1 says, let's not be hearers only. Let's be doers of God's word. Let's not just fast and make this all about us. Let's have an others-centered kind of worship. So as we've taken another look at Isaiah 58, I want you to see the the three movements that we have tried to outline in your guide. We can see that the prophet Isaiah is calling out self-centered worship and instead, in opposite of that, an others-centered worship. I hope those two points have been clear that we can very easily turn our acts of worship into a self-centered sort of manipulation of God. And instead, we're called to be an other-centered kind of people like Jesus and like God is himself, who does not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but empties himself. Or all of those passages of Scripture where we don't try and gain life, we try and lose it, and then we truly find life. In uh, the passage that we have just uh, read again, uh, I think there's a few things that are going to be helpful for us to see. Uh, Notice the way that the the passage begins in verse 1 with a crying and a trumpet blast of judgment, of calling out sin. But then notice the way that in verse 8, everything shifts. And from 8 all the way to verse 14, there is this promise after promise of God's blessing and his love toward these people. If, if they would turn to him, then their light shall break forth like the dawn, like a new day. Your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you and the glory of the Lord be behind you. You're going to be surrounded by the glory of God. And you just keep reading through it. You know, you're going to be like a well-watered garden, a spring of water who does not fail. Ancient ruins being rebuilt, especially when you're thinking about Israel in this context and the exile and the destruction of the temple. 
and on and on. These are beautiful pictures of hope and encouragement. This is actually not a downer of a passage. And so I want to just pause for a minute and think so far, has there been any moments where you've been like, man, I feel kind of guilty. I feel kind of like I'm a self-centered, terrible person that eats food and is really self-centered in my worship. And even the things I do that are supposed to be good religious stuff, I've somehow even twisted that and made it dark and ugly. And so I'm wondering if any of you are experiencing that feeling of, man, I'm just feeling guilty right now. Guilt and shame. And you know, there's a lot of times where we go to church and I think that I can remember, you, you, you might feel a zinger of something that's been said from a pulpit and you think, oh yeah, I really need to change and I need to do that. And then I, I've learned throughout my life that I just don't know if that's what God's calling us to. And in fact, in this passage of Isaiah, I think he makes that really clear. That he's not just trying to condemn their sin. He's trying to give them hope. He's trying to provide them with the beauty and the glory of God through what we might eventually call the gospel to transform their worship. Because when their worship is transformed, then their practices will be transformed. And that relationship between their heart and their hands will become made new. Here's what I want to point out. Look at verse 13. If you do not turn your foot back from the Sabbath, this is like, be careful where where you step, is what he's saying, in regards to the Sabbath. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight. And call the Sabbath a delight. Now, there are these uh, Bible scholars that say, hey, Isaiah was talking about fasting. Why is he talking about Sabbath now? Uh, This must have been some sort of like entry later on where, you know, Isaiah didn't write this and some other guy wrote it and whatever. And it, like, that's just the fun stuff that I get to read about and share with you all. But here's, here's a better commentary from uh, Alec Matir. He's one of the best on Isaiah. And here's, here's just a really short summarized answer to what I think's going on in Isaiah 58. He says, the essence of the religion in the Bible is responding to God. Not doing things to influence the Lord, but doing things to obey him. Not good works looking for our reward, but faith that flows into obedience. So for this reason, Isaiah counterposes the desperate fasting of these Israelites in verses 2 and 3 and ends with a joyful keeping of the Sabbath in verses 13 and 14. Because in every sense, the Sabbath for the Jew brings the person to the heart of the matter. It is a real test of your heartfelt faith and religion to give the whole day to God and do it all with a delight. The Sabbath is first a call to consecrate your life to God's timetable, to adopt a style for six days, which allows the seventh day to be holy and set apart. But it goes beyond that. In verses 13 and 14, notice the way the word delight dominates this passage. The heart that is captivated with joy in God, that the day is set apart as a day of restful joy. This is the reason 
for the Sabbath emphasis, not just in Isaiah 58, but in fact, the whole 10 chapters surrounding Isaiah 58. It is a symbol of a whole life and heart devoted to the Lord. When I read that, I was like, that's so helpful. And I thought that that's a good point for you to see that what God is calling us to is a life of heart-filled joy in the Lord. Not just dutiful obedience, but one where you have a captured imagination for the goodness of God. And this is why I think he just waxes and and poetically tells us of all of God's promises and his goodness and how if you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and you satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom will be like the noon day. It's when we encounter God in this way that we start to see our hearts and our lives transformed. Um, I made a little chart. It's gorgeous. And so I want to share it with you all. And uh, some of you, if, if you're not on the actual video call, I'm sorry. Hopefully you'll be able to understand uh, what I'm describing here. Here it is. It is uh, the desire of the heart that shapes the habits of our hands. And I mean this habits to refer to anything. In one sense, you can pull this principle out to like everything you do every day. Because the things we do every day, every little ritual and habit of our life, it shapes us. We become the very things that we do, and we do the very things that we worship. And so there's this circular relationship between our heart and our hands. So if you can't see this, and you're listening to the podcast later or something, essentially imagine a big circle, and on two sides of the circle, you have on the left side a heart and the desires of our heart, and on the right side our hands. And that's referring to our habits. And I think it's really important for us to see that our heart gets shaped by our worship. And then whatever we worship, it'll lead to the very habits that we do. But on the other hand, the things that you do will eventually shape your heart. The more you do something over and over again, the more it's going to shape the kind of person you are. So you could actually start this at any point. You might start a new habit on connected to your heart, but then realize that it is actually shaping your heart. So to put it another way, Isaiah 58 shows us that you could fast a habit of the hands, a practice of religion an external obedience, right? You could fast in such a way where it's going to shape your heart, where you love yourself more and you hate others. So that's the sort of hand moving of your, the way you do something is going to shape your heart in a bad way. Sometimes. And then that then begs the question, okay, we could sit here and feel guilty and say, all right, I, I want my heart changed. But like me sitting here saying, all right, love God more. That, that doesn't change and transform the heart. Um, Kristen Getty, the other night, she's doing these uh, family hymn sings. And she said this glorious line um, and in one of these uh, Facebook Live family hymn sings. She said, just like the way uh, we, we sing and music helps draw us in because of the beauty of music and, and whatever else. Like, think of it like laughter. If I tell you guys right now, hey, laugh, you're going to like give a fake laugh. Ha, you know. Uh, but like if I tell you a joke, then you might laugh. And I, I should have thought of this, but I don't have a joke. So maybe that's funny. But here's, here's the point. It's the same way. Our hearts get shaped 
not by me telling you, okay, so love God today, love God this week and give up food. And some of you are going to feel like, yeah, I feel guilty. And so I'm going to love God this week and and really try and and dig in and, and, and really do this for God. Or you could behold the beauty. Here's, here's the line I heard from Tim Keller. Duty for God chains to joyful worship when you see the beauty of God. Duty for God, like just the duties, I got to do this and obey, changes into joyful worship when we see the beauty of God. And so therefore, oh, he gives this example. This is helpful too. He said when he was in college, he was forced to take a bunch of um, uh, music appreciation classes in order for him to graduate. It was a required class. And so he had to listen to a ton of Mozart. This is, this is good because it's, it's like he, he did the class in order to pass the class in order to graduate. So that way he could get a job so he could make money. And so in, in short, why did he listen to Mozart was so he could make money, you know? And then he said, because of the class, because of the actions of that class, he appreciated Mozart. So now he spends a lot of money because of the beauty of Mozart, just for the sake of it. Do you, do you see the point? It wasn't just a, it first began as a duty. And sometimes it's like that. Sometimes you start fasting because, well, that's what I need to do. But you need to have the beauty of the Lord eventually come in and shape the heart so that it's not just a duty, it's a joyful delight. And there's, um, there's so many records that I was reading on fasting where there's this one book where it's like the guy's just oozing with why I love fasting so much. Some of it was almost a bit weird of like, all right, you're you're freaking me out, you know? But I think the thing I want to close with today is for you to consider the beauty of the Lord Jesus, to consider the fact that he's calling us to care for the poor and stand in solidarity with him because that's what he did. He himself became poor. Don't you know those words from 2 Corinthians 8, 9? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Or consider the solidarity of Jesus that so identifies with the poor, or the naked, or the hungry. When he says in Matthew chapter 25 that I was hungry and you gave me food and I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink and I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me and I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then some will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you? sick or in prison and visit you. And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Your understanding of Jesus needs to be shaped by the fact that he had no place 
to lay his head. Foxes and dens and birds have nests, but the son of man had no place to lay his head. He experienced injustice at his trial with all kinds of mistrials and lies and false testimonies so that all of us who have been oppressed and abused and suffered the injustice of this world knows that he stands in solidarity with us. He does not just do it like a shaving of the head, but he actually took on the very suffering that you and I go through hunger, fasting, afflicting oneself. Remember that when he was born, he was wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a feeding trough. On and on we could go. When we behold the glory of the incarnation, we see that Jesus did not come to be a king with a silver spoon in his mouth, sitting in a palace, but he was a king who humbled himself and became poor all the way to the point of death. And so think about you clothing the naked when you realize Jesus hung naked from a cross and had his robes stripped and gambled before his feet. And he there stands before us as the ultimate sign of solidarity and love for the poor and the naked and the widow and the fatherless. This is the God that we worship and the beauty of his love for us and his standing in solidarity with us shapes the heart. And it transforms the heart to give you new habits with your hands. And so I call you friends, brothers and sisters to fast, to give up some food, maybe pick one meal, one meal this week as one practical application. And what you would have done with that time and that money and that energy, use it for packing a meal for Rand Grove with the instructions that we give out later in some emails this week. And do it not out of duty, but do it out of the beauty of Jesus. This is the way of Christ. This is what it looks like to repent of our self-centeredness and have Christ-centered worship. I hope you were encouraged to uh, sing those songs. Uh, We chose these songs because we wanted to remember that worship is Christ-centered it is God-centered. It, it happens through God's spirit in our hearts as he pours out his love toward us. It is through Jesus and Jesus alone that we can give glory and praise to the Father. And so we were singing these songs. We were singing in our first song just now, Build My Life. Oh, holy, there's no one like you. There's none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder and show me who you are. And fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. Notice the combination of when we see God for who he is, the holiness and the wonder of who he is. It fills our heart with love and leads us to the love around us. Or that line, his will be done, his kingdom come on earth as is above, who is himself our daily bread. Here's a thought for you as you fast. For anybody that takes up this practice of fasting, read John chapter 4 and notice that when Jesus is hungry, after the woman in the well scene in John 4, he says, my food is to do the will of the Father. Jesus feeds on the will of God. Let his will be done and his kingdom come. He is our daily bread. And so there's a way for us to be sustained, not by bread alone, but by God. And that's the very thing that Jesus did in his own life. 
So let living water satisfy the thirsty without price. We'll take a cup of kindness yet, and may all glory be to Christ. That's Christ-centered, God-centered worship, and that's why we close with those two songs. Our closing benediction is going to just repeat the passage I read for you just a moment ago, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. I want to just close this in a word of prayer of thanks. And then if anyone needs to go, you're free to go. And uh, I also, um, if you want to stick around and say hello or something for a minute, that's always fun too. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the gospel and the sending of Jesus into the world. We want to thank you for sending the spirit and making the fullness of your presence to be experienced now already in this life that's full of brokenness and pain and hardship. We want to pray, God, that you would show us who you are, that we would see your holiness, and we would be in awe and wonder, and it would lead us to the love of those around us. We want to pray, God, that we would be thankful for every meal that we have. We would be thankful if we have lunch today or dinner tonight. We would be thankful if we're able to go to the grocery store. We're thankful, God, for the provisions you've provided us. We have been blessed with more than we need, and we pray that we would not be those that just continue to go day after day and week after week and not be considerate of others. And so we want to pray, God, that this teaching, this word from Isaiah, it would convict, but it would build up. It would condemn our sin, but it would show us that there is now no condemnation in Jesus and that there is a joy to be had. It would help us fast, and it would also help us feast. That, that we would, there would be Sabbath joy of realizing Jesus has a, brought in the Sabbath day, the perpetual Sabbath of all Sabbaths, the year of Jubilee, and the kingdom of God is established. So we can both fast as we long for him to return, and we can feast knowing he has already come. So we thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.